This morning, um, well, it was intended to be the first message on the actual commandments. The introduction was last week. But somehow, this message turned into another introduction. And so for that, I apologize. Last week, we considered the theme of freedom. Um, More specifically, that the commandments are freedom. Yes, commandments are freedom. True freedom, we said, was not freedom from doing something simply, uh, or doing whatever one pleases, rather, but freedom for. That's to be entirely devoted to that for which we were created. Freedom is the ability for a creature to flourish as the kind of being it is. And for us, the kind of being that we are supposed to be, that we are, is articulated in the Ten Commandments. Contained in them is God's will for all mankind. Therefore, we said, rather than viewing the commandments as a constraint, almost as a an animal pen keeping us fenced in and closed off from the wider world, we ought to understand the commandments as a ladder, each commandment a step higher toward our exaltation, the purpose of our existence. Far from being an external constraint pressed upon us, a code that can only condemn, the law is the path toward life, the perfect law of liberty, as James calls it. So the gospel doesn't nullify the law, but transfigures it. It is no longer the means by which we seek justification, and in fact, it never was. In Christ, it becomes the law of Christ, Galatians chapter 6, providing for us the broad contours of what the life of love actually looks like. And so we went on and on. I reference you back to that message if you missed it. But today... I want to consider the commandments, the Ten Commandments, from another angle, that of obligation and gratitude. And that is what we find in the preface to the commandments, Exodus chapter 20, verse 2, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, these words can be understood from two vantage points. The divine side, I am the Lord your God, in that they lay a claim upon us, obligation. And they can also be viewed from the human side, in that they evoke a response from us, gratitude. And those two themes will form the outline of our message, divine and human, response and obligation, um, our claim and response, rather, and obligation and gratitude. So, what we find then in the preface is that the commandment does not come out of the blue, but it has a history and a grounding. In other words, the commandment is not arbitrary. God, simply by virtue of who he is, creator and Lord, has every right to command us ad hoc, without sufficient reason. Why, we might ask him, like a curious and slightly mischievous kid, only to get the response with gritted teeth, because I said so. And yet, 
That's almost never the case. Only in rare occasions think the command to Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac, a command with no rationale. Rather, in issuing commands, God provides them a basis and intelligibility through which we can understand them. Now, it's vitally important that we comprehend this, right? That we see what the Lord is doing. Because rarely, if ever, does anyone willingly submit to or acquiesce to power simply because it's power. Instead, if one yields to it, it is because the inherent consequences of disobedience. Power left to itself is fundamentally coercive. I might submit to a power placed over me, say a drill sergeant or a coach, not because I want to, but because I fear the repercussions if I don't. It is not obedience from the heart, right? Anything but that. It is rather a pragmatic decision. I'm looking out for my own well-being. Now, in the same way, if God simply commanded us, you shall not, so on and so forth, without sufficient grounding, that is the only kind of obedience that he could incite from us. So, one's will might be turned over to him, but not in genuine love, right? Only in fear or a strange fetish for raw power. God certainly wields supreme authority, but he is not an authoritarian. And the more one approaches the commandments in that manner, disconnecting them from their grounding, the further one drifts from the God revealed in Jesus Christ. Now, that's one mistake, to view them as simply commands for the sake of commands. But the other mistake is to diminish the absolute claim the commands make upon us. In providing a rational basis for the commandments, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So in providing a rational basis for the commands, they do not cease to be commands. If anything, their authority is only reinforced. We cannot escape the fact that in them, God lays claim to our entire being, and rightfully so. The notion that God sits back, happy to watch us lead our lives according to whatever path we choose, ready to lend a helping hand whenever we need it, is simply false. That's what um, sociologists call moralistic, therapeutic deism. I've spoken about this before. It's the name they put to their conclusions about the way many approach the faith. Now, moralistic therapeutic deism has five basic tenets, and they are a God exists who created and orders the world and watches over life on earth, human life on earth. Two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. For God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when he is needed to resolve a problem. And five, good people go to heaven when they die. 
Now, if that's your theology, I regret to inform you that you are not Christian. God is not an errand boy waiting upon, waiting upon us to service our dreams and plans and pet issues. He is the Lord who commands and orders and requires. The first and the last who lays claim to all that we are. He does not exist to serve us, but we him. And if one wiggles themselves out from under his absolute authority, relativizing his claim upon them, they're inevitably dealing with another God, other than the one revealed in Jesus Christ. So, God gives the command in intelligibility and rationality, but that does not diminish the authority of the commands. Rather, it binds us even closer to that authority, and we'll see how that plays out in just a minute. He doesn't approach us as raw power and might, beating us into submission, yet neither does he merely suggest that we commit our lives um, to him and his ways. Rather, he does claim us authoritatively. You shall not, but he enumerates the reasons why such service is fitting and right, our proper response. And as we've said, those reasons are enumerated in the preface. God, through it, graciously, graciously explains to his creatures why he possesses authority over them, but then why we ought to gladly accept it. So let's see exactly that. The first thing that God roots the command in is his identity. I am the Lord, your God. It is this God's identity, unique among the other so-called gods, that constitutes the primary reason for our obedience to him. So he singles himself out. Let's not forget the context. These words were spoken to a vastly uh, different religious environment than ours. Whereas monotheism, the belief in one God, one creator, is presupposed um, in our day and age, it was entirely novel for them, right? This was not even really known. Theirs was a polytheistic world. Many lords and many gods populated the heavens. And though God did reveal himself to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, it seems that that knowledge was all but lost in Egypt. They had slipped back into idolatry. We find that later on in um, Joshua. Hence, the exodus. It was not only a mighty deliverance, but a divine self-disclosure. In the appearance and declaration of the divine name at the burning bush, in the plagues upon the land of Egypt, in the theophany, in proclamation of the commands at Sinai, and finally in accomplishing his people's deliverance, this God makes himself known. At the burning bush, God reveals his name. I am who I am. And it's as if God penned his name at the corner of a blank canvas titled Exodus before proceeding 
to paint a picture far beyond anyone's imagination. Indeed, the constant refrain as plagues rain down upon Egypt is this, that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The gods of the pantheon cannot stand before this God. He commands the natural elements and holds the keys of life and death. Indeed, he says himself in Exodus 12 that he will execute judgments upon all the gods of Egypt. He turns the waters of the Nile, which were supposed to be the bloodstream of the god Osiris, into literal blood. Osiris bleeds out before his worshipers. Ra, the god of the sun, is humiliated in the ninth plague as deep darkness descends upon the land. The gods of Egypt were judged. They are exposed, demonstrated to be inferior to Israel's God in the deepest respect. Indeed, after the sea swallows up Pharaoh and his army, Miriam sings Exodus 15:11, "Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders?" And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, upon hearing the good news, declares Exodus 18. 10 and 11, blessed be the Lord who delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of Pharaoh, who delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. He says, now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods. Indeed, it was proven when they dealt proudly against the people. Through his mighty deeds and outstretched arm, this God The God of the Exodus declares who he is, greater than all the gods with none to compare. He is not a God among many, albeit supreme. He is not one more object in the inventory of all things that exist. He is rather, I am who I am, the source of all that is, the ground of reality, the creator. And as such, his claim upon us is absolute. I am the Lord, your God. As the supreme reality, the ground of being from which all other things in creation find their rational, rationality, rather, God has inherent authority over our lives. Yet, on the far side of all the events of history, where we are now, we have things exactly backwards. So take, for example, our political system as just one example among many. Who authorizes the government? Where does their authority come from? It comes from the populace, right? We, the people. Authority does not come from above, but from below. We authorize authority. Our consent is what gives them the right to rule over us. And so in a sense, we're bound to obey them, but only until we don't want to. We gave them their power, and we can take it back. But that's to invert, right, the hierarchy of authority. 
There is no authority, the Apostle Paul says, except from God. In other words, all authority is properly his as the source and ground of all reality and is ours only by authorization from him. He authorizes rulers. He rules over the kingdoms of men. So we don't consent to God's authority over our lives. It's already his. We are simply acknowledging something that has always been the case. To say anything else would be to keep that supreme authority located in us. I'll hand over the keys, we seem to say, but I have the right to take them back. I reserve the right to take them back whenever I wish. So who's in charge in that situation? The individual's authority over their life precedes God's. The individual authorizes God. So if one's life, is fundam- one's life is fundamentally their own, yet they may choose, but only if they wish, to yield to him. Right? Rather, the first step in obedience is a glad recognition that the universe we inhabit is morally intelligible. The standards that vaguely inhabit our conscience, which are more clearly articulated in the commands, have a higher grounding than simply our tastes or tradition, but ultimately in the ground of all reality, God. And accepting that basic fact, an authority outside ourselves that that we don't authorize, an authority that simply is authority, that the commands that are given to us terminate in the transcendent, is the beginning of righteousness. There is a right way to live a clear conception of good and evil that isn't merely one we invent for ourselves. Thus, when we untether ourselves from our pride, supposing that we get to set the goalposts, we can submit to a standard and rule outside ourselves a truer way to live. So there's the first part of the commandment, I am the Lord, an authority that supersedes and relativizes our own. And yet, now the second. So having rooted the command in his identity, God proceeds to provide the second basis, which is his works. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So his work on our behalf, rescue and deliverance and liberation, form the basis of his claim upon us. In rescuing the people from slavery, he becomes, in a unique way, their God. As creator and source, he possesses what we might call a general authority over all people. But as redeemer, he comes to possess a unique authority over this particular people. And so this language, I am the Lord, your God is the language of covenant. It's the language of relationship. Israel becomes the Lord's people, and the Lord becomes Israel's God. Now, to understand covenant, this relationship that God enters into with his people, think marriage. Through a marriage, man and woman are bound together as husband and wife. 
Both make solemn vows to one another, promising faithfulness and devotion for the entirety of their lives. Now, and if they fail to uphold their vows, their marriage is likely to end in divorce. Marriage is a covenant, and it provides the closest analogy to the relationship that God establishes with his people. Through the covenant, God enters into binding relationship with his chosen people. He says to them, and these words reoccur throughout all the scripture, I will be your God and you will be my people. The language of covenant, the language of relationship. And so, if the covenant is a relationship, it's an elected or chosen relationship. Not one that the human party chooses. It's not that Israel reached out to God, but one that God chooses. He reached out to them. You did not choose me, Jesus says to his disciples, but I chose you and appointed you. The prophet Ezekiel captures the heart of this election beautifully. This is Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 4 through 8. And the Lord speaking to the people of Israel. He says, As for your birth, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water for your cleansing. You were not rubbed with salt or even wrapped in cloths. No eye looked with pity on you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field, for you, are, for you were abhorred on the day you were born. When I passed by you and saw you squirming in your blood, I said to you, while you were in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you, while you were in your blood, live. I made you numerous like the plants of the field. Then you grew up and became tall and reached the age for fine ornaments. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. Then I passed before you and saw you, and behold, you were at the time for love. So I, pre- so I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. I also swore to you and entered into a covenant with you so that you became mine. The nation Israel is likened to a newborn, covered in blood and nearly strangled with its umbilical cord that no one desired and that people even abhorred, thrown out into the streets. Yet God, when he passed by, declared life over the people. Live, he said, and they lived. And when the people matured and the time for love came, he claimed them and said, I swore to you and entered into covenant with you, and you became mine. And so the nation of Israel owes all her well-being and prosperity to another. She would have died long ago if not... For God. She lives because God has sworn to her. And for what purpose? That she might become his, his bride. Jesus Christ, the apostle says, gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. In other words, we have been redeemed, brought out from slavery, not to be turned loose to pursue others, but to be joined to Christ in covenant. 
He says to us, to you, I entered into covenant with you and you became mine. We will learn later on that this God is jealous, a passionate lover, envious for his people's love and devotion. How easy it is to forget that Christ has redeemed us, not simply for our sake, but for his, to have his bride, the church. And as his bride, betrothed to such a husband, it is our glad duty to give ourselves to none but him. That is our covenant vow. He says, you became mine, and we gladly accept that. The Apostle Paul frames it this way. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15. He died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. The love of Christ controls us. Having tasted and seen his goodness, we are called forth from the smallness of our self-centered lives to live a life larger and more expansive than we could ever imagine. One that is lived for him. Our husband lived and died for us, and we, his bride, must live and die for him. Anything else, anything less, rather, is spiritual adultery. James chapter 4, verse 4, You adulteresses, speaking to the church, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy, en- enemy of God. There are the language of covenant again. You've been married to this one, to go back to the world, to serve other things, to go to other gods, which we'll look at next week, is tantamount to adultery. We have been betrothed to God in Christ through the Spirit. Therefore, let us strive to present ourselves a chaste and holy bride, free from everything that defiles, wholly pleasing to him who entered into covenant with us. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And so this leads us to the human side of the preface, which is, as we said, intended to evoke a response from us. And how can it not? God recounts his identity and his wondrous works. Again, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of slavery. He says these things to woo us, so to speak, that we might willingly enter into covenant with him, not begrudgingly, but with joy and rejoicing. So the words that precede the commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, is secondary to the declaration, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of slavery. Again, the Lord in telling us these things and recounting to us his identity and his work provides for us a rationale for our submission to the commandments. Right, it's very easy to think of the commandments in a legalistic manner if we detach them from the preface and from the larger Exodus story. I have done this for you. I have acted in this manner. Now here is the right response. So our obedience to the command springs 
not from a desire for redemption, but a gratitude in the fact that redemption has already been accomplished. It's not an attempt to earn God's favor, but a response to the favor that has already been given. And as I said, it's quite easy to approach the commandments in a legalistic manner when we forget this. Separated from their energizing force, from the propulsion that carries forth our obedience, it becomes like pushing a car up the road. Our obedience does not come first. Preceding grace and mercy, paving the way for grace and mercy, but our obedience is the result of God's prior grace and mercy. Such is the irrevocable order of the covenant. God has chosen and delivered his people from bondage, and in response, his people commit themselves in loyalty and obedience to him. The divine initiative always precedes and grounds the human response. I've done this, now therefore you do this. So, as I've said, the commands are commands. They're absolute and binding, yet they are made easy and light in the words that precede them. That preface, the Lord's identity and his works, is the source and the ground from which our obedience finds its strength and focus. So here's really the point that I want to make. The commandments are fundamentally about gratitude, about response. As commandments, they do claim our obedience and submission, but that's not their heart. It's very similar to the apostles' formula in the New Testament. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. The apostles' plea is that we would present our bodies a living sacrifice. But it's rooted in a previous reality. It hinges upon the therefore, which he calls us back to. And what does this therefore indicate? Only all that's been elucidated in chapters 1 through 11 of Romans, which is nothing, else, nothing short of all that God has accomplished for us in Christ and the Spirit. So based upon and rooted in all that God has done, the apostle says, we ought to live in this manner. It is our reasonable service. Right? So it's not that in God claiming our entirety, he is being irrational or arbitrary. It's just the opposite. He's acting according to self-evident reason, the rule of love. He's done this. Look at all he's done. Look back and all that God has done for you, all that he's accomplished in Christ and the Spirit. What should your response be? It's very easy to give everything back to him. It's a bit maybe like our parents asking us for help. They have done so much for us, so much love and sacrifice and devotion. And if they ask for anything, if they need help for anything whatsoever, our obedience is a foregone conclusion. It's the only reasonable thing to do. By virtue of who they are and what they've done on our behalf, they have a claim upon us. Now, one of the Jewish rabbis puts it this way. The matter may be compared to a king who came into a city. He said to his people, 
May I rule over you? They said to him, Have you done us any good that you should rule over us? What did he then do? He built a wall for them, brought water for them, fought their battles. Then he said to them, May I rule over you? They said to him, Yes, indeed. So the omnipresent brought the Israelites out of Egypt, divided the sea for them, brought manna down for them, brought up the well for them, provided quell for them, made war for them against Amalek. Then he said to them, May I rule over you? They said to him, Yes, indeed. So the point is, our obedience is rooted in and energized by a source outside ourselves. Our yes, indeed, is the product of God's mighty works on our behalf. We love, says the beloved disciple, because he first loved us. So thus, ideally, our obedience to the commandments ought to be a spontaneous response to a heart overcome with gratitude. To put it more simply, you might say, thankfulness precedes obedience. Praise heralds righteousness. Worship enables sacrifice. And so as much as the commandments are about us saying, yes, indeed, The commandments are also about, maybe even more so about, cultivating a heart that can say those words when it's required. If you love me, Christ says, you will keep my commandments. Now, the priority lies not with the commandments, not even with obedience, but with the love that produces them. The central matter, therefore, is cultivating a heart of love. So if gratitude and love are the fertile soil from which obedience springs, here's the thing, the opposite is also true. An ungrateful and cold heart poisons obedience before it can even sprout. God asks, may I rule over you? And the only response such a heart can give to him is, have you done me any good that you should rule over me? God has indeed done much good, but that one's heart is too turned inward to notice. Remember the apostles' words, Romans chapter 1, verse 21. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. The downward spiral into darkness and every evil thing originates with thanklessness failing to glorify God. So take inventory. Is your life slipping into ever greater degrees of disobedience? Are you drifting from the faith? It may very well be that it's due to a heart that is turned away from gratitude and wonder at the mighty deeds of God and who He is in Himself. Ingratitude is always a turn inward. Gratitude is always a turn outward. Thanklessness is a move deeper into the self. Thankfulness is a move higher into the divine. Grumbling is a step toward unrighteousness. Praise is a step toward holiness. So your only hope, if you want to arrest 
that spiral into darkness is to climb outside of yourself and to drink deep from the wells of God's glory. And that's what the preface to the commandments is all about. Before enumerating his just requirements, God reminds us and directs our attention back to his gracious deeds. Before you even get about obedience, remember this, internalize it. Karl Barth puts it this way. God calls us and orders us and claims us by being gracious to us in Jesus Christ. He claims us and calls us and orders us by being gracious to us. So it's quite simple then, right? We're about to go on a 10-week journey through the commands, possibly even longer, but it all starts here. The better that we are acquainted with the grace that is in Jesus Christ, the more natural obedience will issue forth from our lives. And so, I'll end just with this word. If you wish to be better acquainted with grace, a heart brimming with gratitude, simply begin to thank Jesus Christ for his life, death, resurrection, and ascension on your behalf. Simply begin to thank him for his love for you. Set the tone with your words not forgetting to praise and honor him, and in time, your heart will catch up. You set the tone with your words, and in time, your heart will catch up. It's a malleable and fickle thing, the heart is. Simply give it orders. Psalm 103, praise the Lord, O my soul. Give your heart orders, and it will fall in line soon enough. And let's do that now.